Hello, and welcome to Black Hat Japan. Uh, we're about ready to start here. I'd like to introduce uh, Michael Sutton and Adam Green uh, in their presentation on the art of file format fuzzing. Thank you. Konnichiwa. Uh, I would like to thank everybody for coming. I would also like to take a moment to thank Jeff Moss and the Black Hat crew for inviting us to come here to Tokyo to speak to you today. It's certainly a great honor for us. This is our first visit to Tokyo and it's been an excellent one. Uh, the topic of today's presentation is the art of file format fuzzing. In the coming slides, we'll give a better description of exactly what that is. But before I do that, uh, allow me to just let you know a little bit about ourselves. Um, as Tom said, my name is Michael Sutton. I'm the director of iDefense Labs, and this is my co-presenter, Adam Green, the assistant director of iDefense Labs. iDefense is a, a VeriSign company located in the United States, and we focus on um, security intelligence research. Specifically, iDefense Labs is tasked with original vulnerability discovery, um, and a lot of what we do is developing the tools and methodologies to uncover vulnerabilities. And what we'll talk about today is one particular area of research that Adam and I have been focused on for about the past year or so. What do I hope that you'll take away from the presentation today? Well, I hope you'll have a better understanding of exactly what file format vulnerabilities are, how they're discovered, and more importantly, how they can be defended against. I also hope you'll get an understanding of uh, the tools that we've created and sort of the thoughts and the methodology behind that, and um, hopefully that will help you in your endeavors. Okay, so when you start talking about file formats and why they're interesting in vulnerabilities, you have to think of file formats as just another protocol, like a network protocol. It's just a standard means of communication. Uh, when you have a network, it's, it's two machines communicating. Uh, when you have a file format, it's an application and data communicating. Um, so just as in with a protocol, you need to be able to handle anomalous behavior, like anomalous network packets and things like that. You need to be able to handle anomalous data when you're dealing with a file. So, for example, an application that processes .doc files, like Microsoft Word, should be capable of you know, doing input validation, uh, should have exception handlers in case anything bad happens, uh, and there should at least be some error reporting if something bad does happen. Um, so what, what happens when these things aren't properly implemented? Uh, you can end up with things like buffer overflows, uh, integer overflows and signedness issues, which are pretty related, um, just invalid memory references, and infinite loops, um, which all have varying degrees of relevance to security. Um, so if you look at the historical uh, background of file format vulnerabilities, you may not notice them if, if you haven't focused on them, but Michael and I have been researching this for you know a little more than over a year. So when these things come out, we're very cognizant of, well, here's another file format vulnerability. Uh, if you look at just the top two, the direct shell vulnerability and the Windows shell vulnerability, these were both just disclosed last week by Microsoft in their most recent patches. Uh, the direct shell vulnerability was actually rated a critical by Microsoft. Um, so 
I mentioned here MSO4041, which is a WordPad vulnerability. Um, if you look at this, we've highlighted eight bytes here. Other than these eight bytes, this is just a standard .wri file. Um, when you change these four bytes, the first four is going to end up being your return address, which you'll see in the next the next slide. The second four bytes, the FF, 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 it's the maximum 32-bit integer that can be represented. Um, that's actually trusted as a length tab. A length tag when copying data into a fixed size stack buffer. So when this file is processed, you end up with this in OliDBG, you see EIP is controlled directly by you. And that is completely normal file. The only difference is eight bytes were switched. So immediately you can see with not a terrible amount of manual effort, you can discover things like this. So what is the risk of these types of vulnerabilities? Why are they different from other types of vulnerabilities? Um, users are well aware of the fact that you should not be running untrusted code, such as you know an .exe file or a .com file or a .batch file. But not all users necessarily know that if I open this PDF file or this JPEG file, not all users are aware that that could actually cause them more trouble than an .exe file if they're running a vulnerable application. Um, also, we see a lot of default configurations that, for convenience sake, um, the applications will open these types of files without asking the user. Uh, the extreme example, of course, is web browsers, which automatically process image files. I mean, that's just necessary for a web browsing experience. You need to be able to view images. Um, and you also see that, to a lesser extent, with uh, more multimedia things, AVI files, uh, MPEG files, things like that. Um, also, there's kind of a lack of layered security. You have a lot of IDS products that will um, take very careful notice of the traffic to and from servers, but they won't necessarily be looking at you know, this document file that was sent to a workstation. Now, if that workstation is on the internal network and there's a vulnerability in the, the application that processed that dot dot file, you could be in some serious trouble. Now, Michael's going to discuss some of the targets uh, that you'll be seeing when you deal with file fuzzing. The first step in doing file format fuzzing is to choose your targets. What applications and what file types are you going to go after? At a very high level, they fall into two categories, two very obvious categories, that being binary or machine-readable files and ASCII or human-readable files. Within binary, we found that there were some fairly standard subcategories of file types that um, tended to have vulnerabilities that we wanted to target. And they fell into things like formatted documents, uh, Something like that would be like a Word document, for example, or an Adobe PDF document. These are documents that are very commonly traded on the Internet. For the most part, nobody perceives those as being malicious files. You know, they're not applications, they're not executables. Uh, so they're very freely traded, and it's no big deal to have one pass through your corporate firewall. Image files are another type. It was actually an image file that first got us interested in this type of research. Um, in mid to late 2004, there was a Microsoft JPEG vulnerability, the JPEG GDI Plus that was on the list that Adam had shown. Um, 
Um, and, and that's what piqued our interest. We thought, wait a minute, JPEGs are everywhere. They're all over the internet. You know, every web page you go to has it. To what extent can you actually block files? There's a limitation. If you blocked all files, there is no internet. Um, and lastly, we found that vulnerabilities were um, common in media file formats, things like audio or video. On, on the ASCII side, you're typically dealing with XML or INI files. Generally, it, the files that you're dealing with has a structure of a name-value pair, um, and what you're fuzzing is typically that value. So, you know, making it larger than it should be, putting a value in there that is not supposed to be there, and we found that there's often stack overflows when those values get too big. Beyond the file type that you want to select for your target, you also need to select the application that's associated with it. To look for more serious vulnerabilities, you want to look at file types that are by default associated with a particular application. A simple example, um, by default in a Microsoft environment, a .doc file is associated with Microsoft Word. So Windows is a little bit different than Unix in that, you know, because Windows is a graphical environment, it's designed so that when you as a user double click on that .doc file, it automatically launches in Microsoft Word. Obviously that increases the risk in that all you have to do is give somebody a .doc file, as soon as they open it, the vulnerability would occur. It's very important to recognize that the vulnerability does not exist in the file. The file is just a file. It's not executable. The vulnerability exists in the application that interprets that file. So how do we find what file types are associated with what documents? Uh, fortunately, Microsoft makes it quite easy for us. There's really two primary means of doing that. Windows Explorer is one, and the registry keys themselves, using a tool such as RegEdit, is the other. Very simple to figure it out, and, and many people are probably already aware of this. If you just go within Tools, Folder, Options, within the menu, the navigation menu in Explorer, you'll see the, the first screen on the left. And uh, you can see the file type, the extensions listed down the side here. And if you just click on the Advanced button, you'll go into this window. Windows has this concept of actions. Um, you can do different things with the association. Typically, we're most interested in open, because when you double-click on a file, that's what's going to happen. And then if you were to click on the Edit button, then you get this screen. And it's this line here that we're most interested in, because what this line is is the command line argument that's actually given to launch this application with that particular file type. The reason that's of importance to us is that the tools that we've designed to automate this, and we'll demo those in a bit, are designed to repeatedly launch and kill an application opening a particular file, and then we're monitoring for exceptions. So we need to know exactly how the system expects to launch that, so that's sort of what we're after. When we looked at the research, we found, though, that for whatever reason, it's unclear why, not all associations are actually shown in Explorer. Sometimes you actually have to hunt through the registry keys for it. You can typically search for a file extension. You'll find a number of registry keys. And somewhere within there, you'll see the actual, again, the command line that you're looking for. 
and it, th this was actually for uh, one of the vulnerabilities that we found in uh, something called Microsoft Interactive Training. It's an application that a lot of OEM versions, such as Dell systems, come installed with it. But this is just a situation where we had to hunt through the registry keys to find what we were looking for. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about how this is different under Linux and Unix, which is the area that I concentrated on and wrote my tool for. Um, when you're identifying interesting targets on Linux, um, the first thing that I thought of that I found interesting um, was that there, there are various antivirus companies who have um, a port of their Linux engine, uh, a port of their engine, their antivirus engine available for Linux. So if you're able to just install that engine locally, um, perhaps fuzz that, then if you find a vulnerability, try testing it on one of their, their network-enabled gateways, you might end up with an actual remote vulnerability even after just testing something locally. For example, if you find that a malformed zip file uh, can be leveraged to somehow execute code on their antivirus engine, there's a decent chance that their network-enabled engine is also vulnerable to that. So that can lead you down interesting avenues. Um, looked at a few media players. Real Player is one of them. Real Player has support for a lot of different types of files, uh, both binary like media files and some text XML-based files such as SMIL files, um, things like that. Uh, there's a lot of document viewers, obviously, for Linux, whether they be commercial or open source. Uh, a big commercial one, of course, is Adobe Acrobat. They have a viewer for Linux, so we took a, a look at that. Um, and there's just for PDF files alone, there's a whole slew of other third-party applications that are available. Um, and, of course, web browsers. So immediately you think image formats for each different web browser. And there's some other things you can get web browsers to do uh, based on what kind of functionality they have. Even just parsing of HTML is sometimes an interesting field. And there's been some research into that in the past. So when you're actually creating these files that you're going to be using to test these applications, um, you have to be aware of the different data types and the different common structures that you're going to be seeing. Um, you have, of course, integers, which come in many shapes and sizes. Uh, you can have signed and unsigned bytes, words, and double words. Um, when you're looking at ASCII, you're going to see regular C-style strings, which is just a string of ASCII characters terminated with a null character. Um, you're also going to see some XDR-style length tag strings. So an example of that would be um, a regular C string, but before it, it would have the length that that string is going to be. Um, and sometimes they're padded to a certain length. Sometimes you'll see the length before the string. Sometimes you'll see it after. It's usually pretty easy to recognize. Um, and you'll see things like a one-byte length tag or a two-byte length tag or a four-byte length tag. It can really be anything. It's all about what the, the designer of the format shows. So now that you're familiar with the, the different data types that you're going to be running into, you have to think, how am I going to pick interesting values? And this is where you think, like a QA tester, you need to pick not only things that are just historical to past vulnerabilities and things like this, but also you need to think boundary cases. So 
things like negative numbers, things like large numbers, and even just small numbers can all cause problems. Uh, if you look back at historical vulnerabilities, a lot of these were as simple as a very large value, a very small value, a number that's just barely negative, uh, and things like that. So there's a lot of common values that you can use to find further vulnerabilities. Uh, ASCII, of course, you always want to try just a simple large string. Uh, you can even try an empty string. Strings with inaccurate length tags, whether it be a long string with a saying that it's actually a short string, or a short string saying that it's actually a long string, these things can create problems depending on the logic inside the application. Um, strings that have accurate length tags but are just very long, so that's an even more simple example. And you can see right off the bat that's three Microsoft-related vulnerabilities with that. Um, and of course, strings that have format strings in them. That's, that's an easy one. So I kind of went into it a little bit why those values are interesting. But if you think about it, decrementing a small integer um, can cause it to wrap around and become a large integer. So that can cause problems depending on how the code was implemented. Um, and it's the same, same deal with multiplying, adding, and just incrementing larger integers. Um, and of course, when you're talking about the invalid length tags, the reason that that causes a lot of problems is because sometimes programmers will mix up the true size of the string with the size that the file has told it it actually is. So that can cause a lot of problems. Uh, and of course, the format string, never use user supplied data as a format string. That's, that's a given. So Michael's going to talk a little bit about the pros and the cons of some of the methods that we explored. We looked at two primary means of doing file format fuzzing. The first was a pure raw brute force approach, and the second was what we called an intelligent uh, fuzzing approach. We'll start with the brute force. When we say brute force, we mean taking a good file one that is designed as it should be to be interpreted by the particular application and literally going line by line through every byte of that file and trying every value that can possibly be tried. Now, the advantages and disadvantages for the most part I think are fairly clear. A clear disadvantage is that that's time consuming. You know, files can be several thousand, several hundred thousand bytes and it therefore takes even an automated machine like a computer a while to go through all of that. But, you know, since we are dealing with computers, that's a, an acceptable approach. We can start an audit, let it run all night and come back and see the results. Another downside, though, is that we have an increased number of uh, false positive values because we may run into many situations where there's an exception of some sort, but it's not anything that could ever turn into a vulnerability. Another perhaps less obvious downside that we found to taking a purely brute force approach is that many file formats have uh, dependent values within that Within that file, a very simple example would be a PNG file. A PNG is an open format for image files. And within the header of a PNG file, it will, in certain places, have CRC32 checksums. So a, a checksum to make sure that the data it's received has 
has been valid. Um, it's not necessarily doing it to prevent file fuzzing. More likely, it's there to prevent things such as data corruption. You know, a packet gets transmitted to you over the internet, something goes wrong, and you don't end up with the proper data. The problem when files that have checksums are that you may have changed the value over here, and now this checksum is off. And so when the application receives that file, it will see that it has a bad checksum, and it will stop processing the file. So you will never get to the point where the uh, where the vulnerability would have occurred in the first place. So we realized as we were doing our research that at some point we were going to have to go beyond a pure brute force approach uh, to make the research more interesting. The, the second approach that I mentioned is what we called intelligent fuzzing. I think that's more of a term that we use. It's not really an industry term. But the idea there is simply, rather than just going through all of the bytes of the file, you're trying to focus on the areas where you're most likely to have the best results. So for example, you have a file and you know that there are name value pairs within the header portion. Well, you want to focus on the value pairs. You probably don't want to hit the um, name portion of that. But so how do you even know that sort of thing? If you're dealing with an open file format, it's pretty easy. It's public knowledge. And you know we've listed a number of websites here that have file format details, specifications for a number of different uh, file formats. What if you're dealing with a proprietary file format? It doesn't mean that there isn't research available to you. I would actually say you should never need to start from scratch when you're doing this type of research because more than likely there is somebody has tried to reverse engineer that proprietary uh, protocol. With most security research, Google is your friend. Start there. Start doing searches on the internet. See if somebody else has tried to break down this protocol. Uh, secondly, we found that file diffing would help sometimes. By diffing, I mean just comparing two dissimilar files and understanding where those differences lie. If you have files with, pardon me, with fixed header values, fixed length headers, um, you can very quickly see what is the header portion, what is the data portion. Sometimes you can even see where those name value pairs reside. doesn't necessarily work if you have variable length fields, though. And the last two resources that we listed, those two uh, URLs, the web pages, they're very useful resources. It's just collections of file format specifications, both open source and proprietary. So, you know, rather than you going to find it yourself, uh, they've, they've gathered a lot of that information together for you. Now, what is the good and the bad of the intelligent approach? The the one bad side that you get right off the bat is it's much more time consuming. When you're doing a brute force approach, you can start right off the bat. You all you need is a is a good file to start with. In this case, you don't have a file. What you're doing is you're basically creating the blueprints to tell your application this is what a legitimate file should look like. You know, here is the header, here is the data. Within the header, this first block tells it this, the second block tells it this. And so you have to build that. And that's time consuming. You also may have to create many blueprints because if you take a complex file format, PNG or a .doc file, they're very complex formats. There's a lot of different ways that they can be set up. So you may have to create many, many templates in order to get broad coverage of the actual file. Big advantages though, you can take care of that situation that I talked about earlier where you have a checksum 
that would nullify, that would kill the uh, brute force approach. You can you can target that. You can create the proper checksum for the fuzzed file. You can target only specific fields, only the ones that you think are going to be interesting. Um, and what we've done is we've created some tools that take these different approaches. Okay, so once once you've created the files, uh, you need to actually you know get to work. You need to let the the targeted applications actually um, execute and process these files. So um, you want you want this to be somewhat automated. So you're going to want your application to be continually launching more instances with with new files. If, if one file doesn't cause a crash, maybe the next one will. Change it slightly, change it slightly. Um, so you have to kind of have a time determination uh, for most applications. For example, if you open a a document in Microsoft Word. You open the program and that's it. The program will stay open and it will display the document until you tell it to quit. So if you're trying to automate something like that, you need to make sure that once you realize that document didn't cause a problem, you need to close the application and move on. So in Windows, you can use the task kill command uh, to kill the process, or you can use the kill process function call, which is in the Windows API. Um, in Unix, you can use the kill command from the shell, or the kill call, system call. Um, also, this is kind of a special case. If you're, brow if you're fuzzing browsers, web browsers specifically, um, you don't necessarily need to do the timed kill and re-execute. There's actually a clever method you can use. Um, the tool MangleMe by LCAMTuff uses this method. It basically just uses the meta refresh tag in HTML, which will tell the web page to, after a certain amount of time that you specify, it will reload a page. So if you were to set your fuzzer up to be a CGI program, that each time it's called generates a different set of output, different set of maybe invalid HTML, you don't have to worry about any of the other details. All you have to do is point the browser at it, and the browser will do all the work for you. So time termination isn't required at all for that. Um, now, once you've got the files created, you're starting to process them, you have to actually start monitoring the application for any exceptions that might occur. This is where some of the interesting stuff starts happening. So you can do this uh, one way of several. Uh, you can hook functions. Uh, you can use an actual debugging API, for example. On Linux, my tool uses ptrace, which will allow you to dump the registers, read memory, intercept signals. Um, you can you can simply just look at standard output, standard error. Uh, you can read error logs. Uh, of course, you'll just notice if the application crashes. That's obviously a sign. Um, or you can just check the return value. The most effective way, of course, is using the debugging API because just using error logs, you can't necessarily determine, okay, it crashed, but why did it crash? If you use a debugging API, you can dump the exact registry state, you can dump memory from arbitrary locations, and then you really have something to look at later on when you come back. So, just taking a look at some of the exploitable vulnerabilities that have been discovered, um, the Microsoft Interactive Training Buffer Overflow, uh, Michael mentioned earlier, this was something that was discovered with his tool, um, and that was just as simple as a long string in a, in a name value pair. 
um, the, the very recent Microsoft Shell vulnerabilities. Uh, they were fixed last week by Microsoft. Both deal with uh, stack overflows with .lnk files. It was a simple ASCII string within a binary file. So that's something that with a fuzzer is not terribly difficult to discover. Um, as a, as a testing platform for my application, I tested Redelf's binary parsing capabilities, found it wasn't that robust. There's more than a few heap overflow vulnerabilities in there. Um, when you're talking about image overflows, uh, Michael mentioned earlier the JPEG GDI vulnerability. It's kind of an old one, but it was an interesting one nonetheless. Um, and of course, there have been format string vulnerabilities. One in Adobe Acrobat Reader, fairly, fairly long time ago, and just last week, uh, real player vulnerability was publicized that we actually mentioned at Black Hat Vegas. Um, and so now we're going to kind of go into demos of our tools. Uh, I believe Michael's going to go first. He's going to demo his tool FileFuzz for Windows. So the way we kind of split our research is that Adam tended to focus more on the Unix, Linux side of things, and I focused more on the Windows side of the house. Um, so the idea on the Windows side was we were creating more of a brute force fuzzer with some intelligent capabilities built into it. And I'll show you the tool and I'll walk through it. But before I do that, I just want to reiterate what fuzzing is because it's important to understand that concept in order to understand what these tools are trying to accomplish. At a very high level, there are really two approaches to vulnerability discovery, reverse engineering and fuzzing. Reverse engineering is very surgical, very precise. You are taking an application and you are looking through it with a great level of detail and trying to find a spot within that program that has a vulnerability. And you're then backing out to say, okay, could an end user actually ever get to that point within the program? Uh, as I say, very surgical. Surgical is a good word to describe reverse engineering. Fuzzing is the complete opposite. Fuzzing is ugly, but it is effective. It works. It's a good way to find vulnerabilities. Um, with fuzzing, you are throwing everything you can think of at an application and watching to see how it reacts. The internet and applications all work together in harmony because the sender and the receiver have an expectation of how communication will occur. The sending application sends something according to the agreed upon format and the receiving application decodes that in a way that it, that adheres to the format. And because they both do it the same way, it works. With fuzzing, you're saying, well, what if I don't do it according to the format? What if I change something? As Adam mentioned in the very beginning, a robust application should be able to handle that. It should be able to say, this is bad data, I'm going to drop it. Like a checksum, that's a good example. It's saying, this something went wrong here, we're going to stop processing. Because if we don't, a problem could occur. And sometimes those problems can lead to vulnerabilities. To make an analogy, think of breaking into a house. The reverse engineering approach to that is you get a copy of the blueprints, you study them, you realize that there's a, a window that, you know, is not very high off the ground, there's no bars on it, and you realize that that might be a good way to break into that house. Very surgical. 
the fuzzing approach, you stand on a hill a hundred yards away from that house and you start chopping rocks at it. And some of them bounce off the wall and eventually one goes through a window. You say, hey, there's a good way to get in. These, these tools, the idea is to take a brute force approach, this tool, um, file fuzz. So the idea is that you're selecting a particular file type and a target that you're going to target with it. I've added some canned audits, for lack of a better term, in here. So, for example, the one that I'll pick, um, it's going to fuzz a CHM file. That's the extension is .chm. That's a compiled help file. And the particular application that interprets that is hh.exe. It's a default application that exists on Windows. The way that I've built the program so that it can be somewhat extensible is that the contents of those canned audits are actually just um, sitting in an XML file behind. So as long as you, this is the actual XML file that that program reads. So as long, if you want to add a new audit, all you have to do is just change this particular XML file and you can continually add an audit to it. Um, you can also just manually fill in all the fields if you want to just do a one-time audit. But typically, when I'm using it, I'll play around with it and I'll say, okay, this is a file that I want to focus on, so then I'll just add it to the list of audits. The idea is there's sort of a three-fold process. Number one, you're creating the files that you want to fuzz. Number two, you're executing the applications with those fuzzed files. And three, you're monitoring for any exceptions that would occur. So in this case, I've chosen the CHM files with HH. I've told it where my target directory is. If you look at the scope down here, uh, there's just different approaches. I could say I want it to fuzz all bytes. That's the, the raw brute force approach I talked about. You'd pick a range of bytes. Let's say you know that the header portion of the file is you know between byte 0 and 200, so you want to target that. In this case, I know there will be an exception in the range of about 130 to 140, so I'll focus on that instead. And then you tell it, what do you want it to overwrite? Um, what values do you want to be overwritten? In this case, I'm going to say I want it to overwrite with a value of FF, um, and I'm going to do four bytes, so a double word value, and just in a range. Um, depth, I'll talk about in just a sec. The match function, that's more geared toward ASCII file format. So you're saying I want it to Pick, look for a certain thing within the file. Think of an INI file. You have a name equals value. And so you're saying anywhere there's an equal sign, I want you to overwrite with a big range of A's that continually grows. But for this case, CHM file is a binary file. So I would then create those files, and it would just create the 10 files. I've already done that for the purposes of the demonstration. And then I'm executing it. Now you see this, earlier I talked about how we find what is the command line argument that is given to Windows to launch the application, and this is why it's important, because we need to tell the application this is how you launch a CHM file, and sometimes Windows can be very picky with things like the quotation marks being there or not being there, so you need to be very exact. And then once you're executing it, all that you're doing is you're repeatedly launching and killing that application. And sometimes you may see the window actually pop up for a second there. And all it's doing is quickly launching it and killing it, launching it and killing it. And at the same time, we're using the Windows API to monitor for any exceptions that occur. And that way we can see, is there something 
going on that could potentially lead to security vulnerability. So it ran through all of those permutations, and you see it spelled out some, um, some exceptions. I printed them out on another window so it's a little bit easier to read. Now, it's important to note that for none of these tools, be it um, the ones that I created or the ones that Adam created, these aren't script kitty tools. These aren't push a button and it's going to go find the vulnerability for you. All it's going to do is automate your research to show you where to focus in on. So what it's telling me is it's telling me that when it launched, you can't see it's cut off, but it was file 133, there was a, a, an, a, an access violation which occurred. It's going to tell me where within memory that occurred. It's going to give me this specific disassembly, the opcodes that occurred. So this is probably not an interesting one. It's just ordering a couple of values. It's also telling me all of the values that existed within the, regis the registers at that time. And that's valuable to me because sometimes I can actually see my information directly in there. Remember, I was doing a double word value of all Fs. I don't actually see that in there. So that tells me that my... Um, my user input isn't directly getting into the register. And I mentioned that I would get back to the depth um, option, and that's why. Because the way that I would typically use this is I would first go for breadth and then for depth. So I'm running through all bytes of a file, and I'm looking where do my exceptions occur. Where might I be able to look for further security vulnerabilities? And at that point, I would then go for depth. So here I would say, okay, I know something weird is happening in byte 133. And I tried an FF in there. Now what happens if I try other values? So then I could do a range. You know, if I wanted to do a pure brute force, I might do all possible values, 0, 0, 0, 0 to FF, FF. And I'll drill down. And what that will tell me, when I look at those results, if I see the same values in all of the registers, then I know that I don't have any influence over that. It's just causing an exception um, that I can't change. In this case, I didn't see my information directly in there, but if I look at those registers and I see different values coming up, and perhaps I even see a trend in there, then that's telling me I do have some influence over what's occurring at that exception. And so maybe it is something that I want to look into further. And now I'll turn it over to Adam to go through his tool. Um, I wrote two tools. Uh, one of them is based on Spike. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but Spike basically allows you to describe um, some data structures and data types to it, and it has an engine behind it that will um, basically fuzz those values appropriately. So you tell it it's an integer field followed by this structure followed by a string. It will adhere to that and then fuzz some of those variables appropriately. Um, so my version of that, it was modified to target files. Spike was originally written to do basically network traffic. Uh, it's what it had in mind. Um, I added just uh, something to automate the execution and exception monitoring using the Ptrace API under Linux. Um, and I made it so that it can fork off multiple processes, which speeds things up a great deal. Um, and also just added experimental support to do the CRC32 checksum that Michael mentioned earlier so that you can actually fuzz PNG files if you want. You can do arbitrary calculations over arbitrary blocks of data, even if it's something that you modified, that you fuzzed. Um, and so it takes .spk scripts as input, which is the standard format that Spike takes. 
Um, and this tool was used to discover the real player, real text format string vulnerability that I mentioned earlier. Um, and actually, we just hit the mailing list last week. Uh, another researcher also discovered it. So if you want any more information, it's available there. And I believe we have some information on our website. Um, the tool I'm going to demo today is not spike file, it's called. Um, this is a simple fuzzer in the style of Michael's, except I did not write a graphical user interface for it. So if you want to use it, you kind of have to work for it. Um, you can try and work it out based on the the, uh, the help that's printed out if you run it with no arguments. I include one example usage of it here, which is used to fuzz like a GIF file, for example. But you can write your own pretty easily. Um, the sample that I'm going to show you, the sample run, is just going to be against the read-off binary, which I mentioned earlier, which just parses binaries and kind of gives you some information about them. Um, so I'll explain the options that we're giving it. The dash K means do not kill the application automatically. Uh, read-off is of the nature that it will exit after it does its work, so you don't have to actually kill it. Um, the dash capital B means that it's a binary file. The dash M12 means launch 12 of the programs at a time to speed things up. Uh, the dash O fuzzy uname is just going to be when you create a fuzzed file and you want to test it, that's going to be the name of the file. Uh, uname is the original file, so that is a, a valid binary that we're going to modify. Uh, and then you just give it the path to the program that you're testing and the arguments for it, and then you let it go. So you can see it's not exactly the most robust program. Just in the first is that 2,000 bytes or so, you already have 67 crashes at 61, uh, which isn't that great. So the data that it'll actually give you, you will get one file for every unique crash. Unique is defined as uh, a unique uh, current program counter address. So in this case, we've got a whole bunch of dumps to look at. Um, it can be narrowed down fairly easily using some of the tools in the shell. But if you wanted to see, for example, what type of data it's going to give you, this is what you get. You get something to describe how to recreate the crash. So if you think that this looks interesting and you want to research it further, give you instructions basically on how you can recreate it so that you can take a better look at it. It'll give you all the register states. So that's this right here. It'll give you about five or ten of the executing instructions, including the one that actually caused the crash, which is this one right here. In this case, um, it's only a no pointer to reference, uh, or actually it's just a bad memory reference, which may or not may or may not be interesting. You would have to manually look into that. Um, and then you also get a stack dump. So this is the data that was on the stack at the time of the crash. Um, and some of the bugs I have a quick explanation of one of the vulnerabilities that was found. Uh, for anyone who's familiar with vulnerability development, it's, it's a typical um, heap overflow caused by an integer overflow. So you have something like um, a 32-bit size value from the file that's trusted. It's not checked for an integer overflow. So you do a malloc of that value times 4, and then you loop through 
with the original value and start writing onto that area that you allocated. When you run into trouble is if you if you supplied one of these values, this calculation is going to wrap around to zero, and when you pass malloc as zero as an argument, you're going to end up with a very small heap space. And so as it loops through, eventually you're going to be overwriting the heap with your own data, which usually can lead to code execution depending on the circumstances. Um, and there's a couple ways that you can vary what size you use to make it more effective uh, or to get better results. So that's basically a summary of that. And that's something that can be found literally by changing four bytes in the file. So once you have the crash, you still have to do a little work yourself. But it's nice to be able to just set it, forget it for a while, return and have some, some crashes that you need to look into. So uh, these tools are all available. Oh yeah. These tools are all available on our, our website. Uh, labs.idefense.com. They're all GPL tools, so you can do what you want with them. Um, and we encourage you to, you know, fix bugs, report bugs, extend the capability if you so desire. Um, and so here's, we'll just mention some of the vulnerabilities that we found while developing these, these tools. Uh, the Microsoft Interactive Training Buffer Overflow, which has since been fixed. Um, this was a stack overflow parsing CBO files. Uh, that was a text-based format, pretty simple. Um, also, I mentioned the real player, real text vulnerability several times. That has also since been fixed. Uh, still a whole bunch of read-off heap overflows that we're going to be working with the vendor to get fixed. So if you if you want to test out your skills, you know, go either develop your own tool, work on our tool, maybe develop an exploit for this vulnerability. Uh, that's up to you. Um, so our conclusion, after all this research and stuff, our predictions, basically we see on the attack side of things more tool development um, as people realize how easy it can be once you have a decent tool to find these vulnerabilities. Uh, and because of that, we also anticipate an increase in the rate of the discovery of these types of vulnerabilities. Um, when you're talking about defense, we're thinking there's probably going to be a lot more file types blocked at the network perimeter. Things that might have been viewed as innocuous now might be considered a threat. Um, you might see some file scanning utilities uh, implement actually basic parsing themselves, something maybe that would be akin to an IDS that we'll just be looking at uh, application files such as doc files and things like that to try and identify anomalous behavior or excuse me, anomalous uh, data within the file maybe drop them. Um, and you might even see some more advanced parsing that will really get down into it and make sure that it's you know, a valid file, doesn't have shell code and things like that. So with that, any questions? We'll be uh, going to afterwards go over to a speaker table as well, so if you want to talk to us then, by all means feel free, but if there's any questions at this time, please feel free to ask them. Alright, well with that, thank you very much for your time. It was an honor and a, to, to be able to be here today to speak to you. Thank you. session. Yeah.
Yeah, first, absolutely, please. Can you try combining uh, the expressing the file with expressing the app at the same time? Hold on a second, please. Uh, if you could ask your question in the microphone or if you do it in no problem. I'm just curious if you've tried stressing the this in, in a way this is stressing the file, right? And I'm wondering if you've tried stressing the app at the same time. So like combining fuzzing with maybe running the app in low memory conditions or other kinds of stress conditions to see if it behaves differently when you do that. Um we haven't done that. So like I guess so the, the question there would be, you know, would a particular vulnerability occur if the conditions available to the application were different? Um, we haven't looked at it that way. The one thing that we, you do have to be careful with when you're fuzzing, um, because it, it does relate to the conditions, are you could see how we were quickly opening and closing an application um, because we need to do that because we need to get through thousands of files. And um, there's, we may have, it, we have a variable time window. Like we could set it, in the case where I ran the demo, I set it for like 2,000 milliseconds to kill the application. And perhaps I'm killing it too early. Like there may be, it may take time, you know, if memory's filling up over time. And if you kill it too early, you're never going to see that overflow occur. Um, but we have not specifically done anything where we would be stressing the application as well. Like we want to, I guess see you know how it's going to behave under normal conditions because that just in our mind I guess is the way that you know the highest risk scenario is going to occur. Any other questions? All right. Well, obviously we finished a little bit early. It's a little bit hard to predict the uh, how long things take with the translation. But if you have questions that you'd like to just ask us one on one, we'll be over at the speaker table after this. Thank you.